I've had the privilege, um, actually, the, the Lord opened a door immediately following um, wrapping up meeting with you all, typically on a once-a-month basis. Uh, I've been actually filling pulpit once a month in Hubberton Congregational Church, and um, it's been a privilege, and one of the things that I've been doing with that body is going through the book of Acts. So um, today, you're getting a little snapshot of what we've been doing over there, but also, um, I think it's it's pertinent to any church to look at this passage and to have an understanding of what it means to a body. And as we look at some of the things that were going on, and of course, this is an introduction um, to Stephen, which you all know the, the story of Stephen, and you know um, the ultimate persecution that he faced and that he was ultimately stoned for what he taught and what he preached. But we also see some issues that the church was facing at the time due to growth that they were experiencing. And so any church really can learn from this and can really look at this and see, you know, as growth comes, there are bound to be some natural problems that come from that. And Acts chapter 6 shows us that, and I hope this morning it can be an encouragement to you, and, you know, I, I, maybe, it's, maybe you'll see some things here that are like, oh, okay, that's how we can combat that as a body. That's how we can look at that, and if we see this problem start to arise, we can, this is how we should approach it. So um, I'm hoping it's an encouragement this morning, and uh, again, uh, God's Word always gives us uh, a, a lamp to our feet. So um, we're going to look at the truths this morning. So Acts chapter 6, um, we're going to start here just with this chart, just to give you a, I always like, I'm a history teacher, so I always start with the context and always look at the big picture. What, what are we doing here? So as you look at this and see um, what's happening, this is the breakdown of the book of Acts, okay? Um, we have the times broken down from Acts chapter 1 through chapter 28. And really, this is, a, this is a long time span that the book of Acts covers. It's not just a short little snapshot. This is years worth of time. And this chart I really appreciate because it also shows you kind of where the epistles fit into Paul's missionary, missionary journeys around the world at the time as well. So when we're looking at this, Acts chapter 6, we are getting closer to the end of Peter and the rest of the apostles' time in Jerusalem. Acts, I always like to remind people, is a fulfillment directly of Jesus' Great Commission. Okay, The Great Commission is for the disciples, for his followers, to be um, his messengers, right? to bring the gospel to Jer from Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the world. And Acts is built exactly like that command from Jesus. In that, the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem. It then spreads to Judea and Samaria, and then, of course, Paul's missionary journeys to the rest of the world. So there's a direct correlation here to the Great Commission. And as we look at this, we're in Acts chapter 6, we're coming close to the close of the Jerusalem portion of Acts. Um, there's going to be, of course, the, the, the account of Stephen and his stoning is going to bring us to the, the closeout kind of where the Jerusalem portion is going to end and we're going to start to expand to Judea and Samaria and then ultimately to the rest of the world. So as we look at this, um, 
just keep that in the back of your minds, and it's a great context for us to have that. So I'm going to start in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at Acts 6, 1 through 7, and that's what we'll read as a starting point here. I'm coming to you from the ESV this morning. I'm not sure what translation, so it may just be a little bit different, but the ESV is what I'm reading from. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So as we're introduced to this passage, we immediately see and if you have studied Acts at all, you know, literally in the, in the chapters leading up to chapter 6, thousands of people have been saved. And, and that's not an exaggeration. If you go through and they give, you know, the, the passages give you the numbers. And if you add them up, it literally amounts to thousands of believers being added to the church. And what's happening here is we've got problems starting to arise. And if, if you've, you know this probably from uh, any organization you've ever been involved in, any large group of people, you get a large group of people together, there's going to be problems. There's going to be different opinions. There's going to be different. It's, it's our human nature. We're fallen beings, right? There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be strife. There's going to be points of contention. Well, the points of contention that are brought forth in in this early church passage are very legitimate in that there's a group of people that come forward, and they're the Hellenists. And just as background, these are Greek-speaking people, okay? They come forward, and the opposite side of the spectrum here is we have the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking people. So we've got two groups of people, and you also have to remember we have two languages involved here. So there's two languages involved, there's two groups of people, two ethnicities, and there are problems here. And the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking people, have come forward and are saying, we're being neglected. Our widows are being neglected. Now, clearly, um, from Jesus' teaching, care for the widows was a key part of church ministry. So as they're gathering together and as they're doing this, the Greek-speaking people's Widows, the claim is, are being neglected. So in all of the positives that we're dealing with here, in all of the great things that are happening, we've got negatives. We have sin that is still involved here. And 
there is a threat here against the early church. You can only imagine the fact that there's division rising up between these two people. There's probably murmuring going on behind the scenes, right? Well, I can't believe they're leaving us out of this. You know, the, the, how, how awful is this? They're, you know, I see they're getting taken care of, but we're not getting taken care of. And you know how people are and how that churns and how that's going to grow. And ultimately, reading between the lines here, the, the apostles are seeing the greater issue. This is actually starting to detract from the preaching of the word. That's why the apostles are coming forward and saying, we need to guard the preaching of the word. We need to guard and be able to still preach the gospel as we've been commanded. We can't be sidetracked or derailed by these issues. Um, some people will twist this passage, passage and say, well, the apostles were clearly above waiting tables. No, don't, don't read into the passage and see that. They, as the church leaders, are safeguarding the ministry of the church. And they are trying to come up, they're seeking a way to protect the ministry, but also protect the practicality of the fact that these widows need to be served. So we see two different aspects here. So how do you confront, confront the problem? How do we protect the ministry of the church, but also take care of the needs of the church? Because the reality is both of these things that are mentioned in this passage, the care for the widows and the teaching of the word are just as important. And they both need to happen. The early church needs a structure. And this is where we start to see structure be established for the church. Um, we have not come, you know, we have not seen in this part up until this part in Acts, um, the explanation of how a church should truly be structured. You know, unlike uh, we're, we're used to the fact we have elders, we have deacons, we have a pastor or, or a teaching elder or, or however it's established in the body. We haven't seen that up until this point. So you had the apostles who were really leading everything, and now things are getting large enough that they need to add some more structure. And the apostles, and this is a lesson for us, wisely delegate. They begin to figure out a way. They can't handle all of these problems, so they're going to delegate some of it. And this, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, the word deacon is not used here. So, so keep that in mind. A lot of people look at this passage like, well, deacons are established in Acts chapter 6. It's not spelled out that way. But a lot of people interpret that this is kind of the beginning of that type of structure that's going to come from that. So the apostles delegate and they rise up and these seven men are chosen to start to help with this. Does anybody know roots of names well enough to know what those roots, those seven names, who they were probably associated with? I'm interactive, so. Anybody got a guess as to what group they were from? Remember, we're dealing with two groups. So, Greeks. All seven of those to be in this substructure under the apostles are Greeks. There's not a single Hebrew name mixed in there, which is really um, a great testament to the early church in that 
the group that was underserved, all of the men who are brought in to help with this problem come from that group of underserved. So they clearly would have known the problems. They clearly would have known what needed to be addressed. And it's a, it's a great example of how that is cared for and how their widows begin to be cared for. And ultimately, the problem is averted. And as we look at this at the end of uh, verse 7, it says, or, and verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So as you look at this, we, we see the word of God continues to go forth. And we see the ministry is protected in more ways than one. The practical aspects of the ministry and the caring of the widows, that need is met, but also the preaching of the word is met as well. And the lesson here for us in any church that we are a part of and maybe starts to experience growth and there starts to be some of these underlying things, we need to guard the ministry but we also need to guard the practical ministry of our churches. So um, the, the preaching of the word of God being protected, God honored that, and this was, the problem was averted, and the gospel continues to go out. Well, let's turn and take a look at, and, and really uh, want to spend some time introducing Stephen this morning and taking a look at him and what his ministry and um, ultimately what led to uh, him being hated to the point where he was going to be uh, ultimately stoned. So as we look at this, uh, let's read uh, verses 8 through 15 this morning. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, we get a case study here. We get a, we get a direct relationship with one of the seven that have been called out and have been led to be the practical hands of the church in that he would have been charged with helping with the widows, but also Stephen clearly gains a reputation and these men gain reputations as teachers and as spread as those who are spreading the gospel just like the apostles. And Stephen gets that reputation and the scripture also says that he even performs wonders and signs. There are things that are happening and as this takes place, in the midst of these groups of Jews, 
there's nothing new, right? The, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus, who hated his ministry and ultimately sought to put him to death, begin to rise up against Stephen. And these fringe groups of Jews that are mentioned in this passage start to speak out against him. And it's not just publicly speaking out against him because they discover something when they publicly speak out against him. They ultimately don't have the power to speak against the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit's wisdom they could not overcome. They couldn't, they couldn't speak against the wisdom of the Spirit. And ultimately what they seek to do is they start getting together and they rise up these men and these leaders of the church to bring charges against Stephen. And they come out and they say that he has blasphemed, ultimately, blasphemy. We've heard that over and over again. It's what Jesus was accused of, correct? I mean, the blasphemy is what the claim is, that they're, they're claiming false things about God. And in this case, not just God, they're bringing, and, you know, the law of Moses is very passionate and very something they are very uh, dedicated and hold to. So he has blasphemed not just God, he's blasphemed Moses. And ultimately, he has said that Jesus will destroy the temple, ultimate blasphemy, and change the Mosaic law. So those are the two claims that are being brought before this council. And again, it says that before the council even, Stephen's face looks angelic. It's got a brightness to it. So I want to dive into what are these claims and how, what can we learn from them this morning. So Stephen's message is significant. I think I hit that too many times. Oh, maybe it's something in the back, Scott. Um, there we go. Let's go back here. Stephen's message is significant that we look at in this passage, and we're going to dive into this a little bit. Stephen's message that he's giving that obviously is being twisted by these church leaders. It's being twisted for their agenda. But his message, there had to be elements of truth to what they were saying, even though they're twisting it. Stephen is ultimately going to be willing to die for this. He, you know, you think of something, if, if, if it wasn't true or if it, there weren't elements of truth to it, why would he have been willing to die for it? He would have been willing to recant or whatever. This message was important enough and serious enough to Stephen that he stands firm and he stands trial for this. And he's willing to die for it. And the Jews are willing to kill to stop this message. We, we can't overlook that fact and that reality in this passage. And if you go home and this week study Acts chapter 7, the defense that Stephen's going to give immediately following this passage is going to be the longest recorded sermon or message or defense in the book of Acts itself. It's going to be the longest recorded word-for-word -word account of what's going to be said. And we have lots of messages in Acts, from Peter, from Paul, um, you know, all of the different uh, apostles that are mentioned, this is going to be the longest one. So Stephen's statements that are used against him ultimately come from Jesus himself. So I'm going to take three volunteers, 
Can somebody raise their hand and volunteer to get Matthew 26, 60 to 61? Anybody got their Bible with them? Raise their hand. Take that. Lydia, okay. And Mark 15, 29 and 30. Dennis, can I have you grab that one? And uh, John 2, 18 through 22. Sean, can I have you snag that one? And Lydia, when you get to Matthew 26, uh, 60 and 61, if you wouldn't mind nice and loud reading that for us. Take time. I, we can flip pages. It's no problem. Matthew 26, 60 and 61. Yep. So Jesus' words from Matthew 26, 60, and 61. Remember, Stephen's words ultimately that he's teaching in this passage are going to come from Jesus himself. So what Lydia just read is the, the, the witnesses that are the Pharisees ultimately are trying to drum up, and the claim is that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up, Okay. And then we'll go to Dennis Mark 15. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. So we see Jesus, even on the cross, ultimately being ridiculed for his words that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And ultimately, remember, people don't understand the meaning of what he said, right? And Sean's passage is going to shed a little more light to what Jesus really meant by this. But the, the insults are even being hurled at Jesus on the cross for his statements that the temple would be destroyed and raised again in three days. And then Sean, John 2, 18, and 20, 18 to 22. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign shalt thou unto us, seeing thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in the building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? For he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. The last part of that passage of John is really important because it sheds light on what Jesus is really talking about here. Jesus clearly, we have it in, in three of the gospels, says the temple will be destroyed and raised in three days, right? And it's the, it's it's repeatedly a claim and uh, an accusation and a charge against him as a false teaching, similar to what we're seeing with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And what we see at the end of the passage in John is an explanation that Jesus is speaking ultimately of his body. Jesus is going to, Jesus himself is going to be destroyed and in three days raised again. And they couldn't see it. 
and they couldn't understand it. And the passages clearly tell us the disciples didn't even know what this meant until Jesus rose from the dead. And then it kind of clicked. The light came on, right? They understood the fact. So as we look at what Stephen is preaching and what Stephen is teaching, he's using Jesus's words in his teaching clearly, because that's what the claims against him are. And also not just the claims against him, it's what's going to be twisted in his trial as well. So as we look at this, um, let's take a look and talk about what could be meant by destroying the temple. And Jesus' teaching of the destroying of the temple and the, the teachings that he gave in the fact that he is going to be the fulfillment of the old covenant the Mosaic Law, which, remember, Stephen's also being accused of twisting the Mosaic Law. Remember all those rules that are in the Old Testament that line by line by line that these Pharisees were so intent on following every little thing in the Mosaic Covenant and in the Mosaic Law that ultimately we know it's impossible to do as sinful creatures. So Jesus talks about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant going away in a sense. Not that, the, that we ignore the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament scripture is still scripture that is pertinent to our lives, but he talks about the old covenant passing away, the old covenant being fulfilled, and there is mention of the temple being destroyed. So what is meant by this? Well, did Jesus simply mean that his body would be destroyed and raised again on three days make, when he made these statements? Sure. I, I absolutely, uh, John explains that to us. What Sean just read to us clearly states that Jesus, when he's making these statements, is talking about his body and talking about his fulfillment of that ultimate sacrifice in that he is going to be destroyed ultimately and then in three days raised again. But... You can't overlook the fact that in what was just read, his statements are actually made in the temple itself. In the temple, Jesus is standing in several of these instances in the temple when he talks about it being destroyed. So is there a deeper meaning here that we need to look into as far as the temple itself and when Jesus says this? So we're going to turn over to Hebrews for a few minutes. And if you want to follow along, I'm going to read these for us. But we're going to go to Hebrews, and then we're ultimately going to go to Revelation as well. So starting in Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews gives us a lot of insight about the completion or the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. Chapters of Hebrews are dedicated to that topic. They're dedicated to the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And these passages that we're going to dive into here talk about that fulfillment. So Hebrews 7 and jumping to verse 25. And to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has been compared in this passage to the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek himself, which is an Old Testament priest, okay? So as we look at this in Hebrews 7.25, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Consequently, 
And this is, again, summing it all up, in other words, summing up everything that's been said in chapter 7 about Jesus being the high priest, being the, the high, highest order of high priest in the temple. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the writer of Hebrews is making a case here that under the New Testament, the Old Testament has been fulfilled, the Old Testament covenant has been fulfilled, and now, consequently, Jesus is the ultimate priest. You don't need to go to an earthly priest anymore. You have direct access to Christ himself. He is the fulfillment. And in that sense, if we're talking about the destroying of things, Hebrew, you know, Jesus talked about the destroying of the temple. Stephen clearly talked about the destroying of the temple. Hebrews 7.25, in essence, is telling you that that priesthood has been destroyed, so to speak. Okay? We, don't, we, we now have direct access to the greatest high priest. You don't need to go to the earthly priest anymore. And turning over to Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, it says this. And this is, again, talking about the fulfillment of Christ's sacrifice. This is talking about animal sacrifices, which would have taken place in the temple. Remember, people went to the temple to sacrifice because they had to do it over and over and over and over again. It now talks about Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice that destroys that old covenant or fulfills that old covenant of animal sacrifice. So looking at this, 10 through 12. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And here's the the key point. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament, and animal sacrifice is not necessary anymore. So not only do you not need to go to the earthly priest anymore, you don't need the earthly sacrifices of animals anymore. And something that's really cool, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. And this obviously is speaking about the end times. And I I don't believe we can fully understand everything that is written in Revelation, but I do believe, based on the rest of the word of God, that Revelation is God's literal words to us. So there's meaning in what is said in Revelation, even though we can't fully understand all of it. But when it talks about the new heaven and the new earth, look how it is described in Revelation 21, 22 through 24. And I saw no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nation walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory to it. The end times even clearly state the temple's not even there. The temple is destroyed. There's no need for a temple anymore. And what does all this mean? And what is Stephen saying? And what was Christ saying? Salvation has, be, has now become personal. Salvation is not through the uh, rituals of the Old Testament. It is not through the animal sacrifices. It's not through going to the temple and going and seeing the priest. The veil has been torn. That's why the veil was torn when Christ is on the cross. Salvation is now personal. The veil has been torn. You no longer need those things because Christ is your personal Savior. So Stephen, being accused of all these things and saying that the temple will be, Jesus will destroy the temple, how do we interpret this? Well, I like the way John Piper puts this. So um, we're, we have to look at this and, and understand this because obviously at Jesus's time, at Stephen's time, Jesus has ascended already. So how is this, can this be interpreted? But what Stephen, and this is John Piper, what Stephen had to deal with was that the dismantling of the Old Testament system did not happen overnight. It was actually happening gradually. This puts a whole new slant on Acts 6-7 where it says, a great many priests were obedient to the faith. What that really means is a great many priests came to believe that they were out of a job. A great many priests came to believe that Jesus is the one and only high priest now and will never die, and all Christians are priests in his service. The priesthood is no more. The realities of the old covenant have been fulfilled. Jesus has fulfilled all of those things. So Jesus is the only sacrifice, and now the earthly temple has ultimately lost its meaning, and in that sense is destroyed. But the change from the earthly temple is not immediate, and people are still coming to understand that is what we learn from Acts chapter 6. So therefore, as Stephen was saying, and in his words, the temple will be destroyed. It is still happening. It is still becoming a reality as people are coming to Christ and as people are being brought into the fold of God, they start to see and start to understand the realities of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ultimately, that is what Stephen's going to be brought up on charges for. He's going to be brought up on charges because he is preaching the fulfilled work of Christ, that he is the ultimate sacrifice. And Stephen's going to be brought for charges of that. As Luke is writing Acts, we also can see that there are similar issues that get brought out in the book of Acts later on that are, again, old versus new test, old covenant versus new covenant type issues. There's going to be a disagreement over circumcision. 
There's going to be the disagreement and ultimately Peter's vision of the animals coming down from heaven in the sheet and the fact that the Old Testament has been fulfilled. You now can eat these things that were unclean. This is a common theme that we see. So why, when we're looking at this, do we see false witnesses in Acts chapter 6 and especially in verse 13? We have to understand that clearly Stephen's words and his accusers are twisting his words to achieve their aims. Their goal is to ultimately silence the word of God from going out. So though the statements of Jesus and Stephen are happening and have happened, the people that are bringing these claims against Stephen are twisting them to their understanding and bringing up these charges and they're bearing false witness by twisting what Stephen is saying. And also the fact they don't have the clear picture. The veil has not been removed from their eyes. They see it from their perspective and that he is blaspheming the word of God when in fact Stephen is ultimately teaching the fulfillment of the Old Testament and not blasphemy at all. He's just saying, you now have the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. So as we wrap up Acts chapter 6, what can we learn this morning and what can we walk away from this passage and ultimately knowing that Stephen is going to be put to death for this? First off, as we looked at the first portion of this passage, um, with growth, and I pray for growth for all of you here at IBC, care for others while also protecting the ministry. Don't sacrifice the preaching of the word. Be like the, the apostles in Acts chapter 6 who guarded both who made sure the fulfillment of the practicalness of the church was happening, but also that it didn't come at a sacrifice to the preaching of God's word. So make sure that as trials come within the church, both of those things are guarded. And I think the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the message of the rest of Acts chapter 6 is what should be our rally cry this morning always remembering that salvation is personal in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need to be calling others to him for the forgiveness of their sins. I think the, you know, I keep going back to that vision of the, the veil being torn when Christ is on the cross and how it is the, the greatest picture, at least in my mind, of the fulfillment of that Old Testament law, that Jesus is saying it's, it's completed now. And one more quote from John Piper for you this morning. So today we have the reality. Jesus Christ has come into the world to forgive sins once and for all, to be our go-between forever and ever, and to reveal the glory of God. This is what Stephen died for. May God help us to see it the way he saw it, and to cherish Jesus as our new temple more than anything in the world. So this morning, if you have not come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not made that salvation personal, 
if you are relying on rituals, if you're relying on traditions, if you're relying on whatever, know that Jesus is the only fulfillment of the forgiveness of sin. He is the one who came to this world as fully God and as fully man, lived that sinless life, and completed the work that was pointed to from the Old Testament. And he is the only one that we can rely on for our salvation. He is the only one that can forgive our sins and sanctify us and bring us in our lives to completion to be with him. He's the only source. He's the only sacrifice. Let's pray.